BC's Corner, Episode 4. This episode is special, not just because of the conversation and my guest, but how all of this came to be. The horrific shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs has mobilized the queer community of which I'm a part. In a gay bar, a seemingly safe queer space, someone came in and desecrated it. Gay bars are these sacred spaces where we in the community and our allies, we come and we meet and we play Disney bingo and we go to show tune Sundays and we have our Taylor Swift and Beyonce only nights and we see drag shows where performers unleash their souls while in stilettos. These spaces where we come to commune in peace with our shared culture and values. While local law enforcement is still putting together the pieces of what happened that night and more importantly, why and how, I was seeing so many responses, laments, calls to action from friends, community members, media outlets, and politicians. I was taken back though by a series of stories, uh, later a LinkedIn post by uh, a great man, a man that I've known, I've gotten to know this past year, Eric Wilkerson, in which he expressed his frustration at the tenor of attacks the queer community have been facing in recent years, rhetorically and legislatively, acknowledging that the most extreme rhetoric has the ability to validate the actions and hallucinations of any evil actor. I responded to his thread and I was just like, you should come on the show and have a conversation to that point. To say more about Eric, he is the founder and principal of Wilkerson & Company, a nonprofit consulting firm that aims to advance an organization's mission by strengthening their strategic fundraising initiatives. He has a storied career of serving the LGBTQ community in formal capacities in multiple nonprofits that seek to advance the social welfare and political recognition of queer folk. Eric currently serves on the Victory Fund campaign board and is also a Midwest caucus chair for the organization. Additionally, Eric is on the Equality Illinois PAC board, so he is busy, y'all, and he made the time on short notice to come and be on the show today. And I love this opportunity that we have to have another necessary conversation. And when I bring people on, I don't just want to bring on great people but I want to bring on great people that are truly experts in their field. And Eric is no exception. So without further ado, I am so pleased to have this conversation with Eric Wilkerson. And I will see you all soon. It's so great to have you on the show. I knew in 2022, I was going to start a podcast. And when I was casting and mapping out what I wanted this project to accomplish and really opening myself up to what it could accomplish that I maybe hadn't really set my heart on, I knew that I wanted to have necessary conversations that don't feed into sensationalism, that don't feed into silos, but truly meaningful conversations that bring clarity and unique insights through the given circumstances of others. And with the tragic events of last Saturday at Club Q, this just made sense. Uh, so thank you for coming on, for taking the time, for giving me your time. And we're doing this, just so you guys know, on very short notice. And so it's super cool to to have you on, Eric. Well, thank you, Brian. And uh, I appreciate you creating a space for conversations like this. I love it. But I guess we should tell people how we met, because I didn't just like find you on the internet. I didn't see you somewhere. We actually met at Elro, which is like this EDM concert thing that I was invited to and I paid for my ticket and I actually was traveling and I got back from traveling that that day, that Saturday back in like April 2022. And my, my friends are like, let's pregame before we go to the concert. And I'm like, I don't really feel like doing the whole social connection thing right before the concert. I kind of just want to go because I really just want to go to bed. And I go and I'm like in the middle of the dance floor, actually having a really bang out time. Like the music was so good. And what do I know? I'm standing next to you and your partner, and I got the opportunity to just meet you guys very briefly in kind of like this chance encounter. And I always meet people when I go out. So it was kind of like a high buy. Then my former job at Simply Be, I'm producing this event, Simply Proud, celebrating LGBTQ plus leaders and light workers. And I need to come up and produce this panel of all-star, you know, queer representatives from the business space. And so 
I'm looking through Crane's LGBTQ, like notable entrepreneurs and leaders. I'm like looking in all the places and I come across your profile and I'm reading about you. And then I look at his face. I look at your face and I'm like, I know this guy. And so ended up inviting you to come on and be a part of the panel. And you were a part of that experience. But that's just for me to say that you never really know who you're going to meet when you go places. You never know who you're going to be able to connect with. So I'm really excited. Did that track, does that track for how we met? It's so true. And I think it's actually special considering the conversation that we're having today and the events uh, last weekend. You know, we met, um, we were strangers at a space that is not strictly dedicated to LGBTQ people, but a a space where um, where we are fully accepted and embraced. And I think that demonstrates the power of um, community and the power of acceptance and the importance of LGBTQ spaces around the country. I love that. And so you are the founder. Like I said, you never know who you're going to meet wherever you are. So I guess be on your best behavior and always put on deodorant. But you're the founder and principal of Wilkerson and Company, a nonprofit consulting firm, and you advance organizations' missions by strengthening their strategic fundraising initiatives. And prior to starting this venture back in 2021, you've served in a formal capacity in many nonprofits that specifically serve the LGBTQ plus community. And just so people who are listening, I say LGBTQ plus, and I also say queer interchangeably. Um, they both are broad umbrellas in which we include everyone who is a part of that movement. And so if you hear me say LGBTQ plus and then switch to queer, it's probably for the sake of convenience, but that is what I'm referring to when I say that. Uh, but you've been super involved in, in, I guess, the movement for civil rights, for civil liberties, and the progression of queer folk going forward in this country. And you've currently served on the Victory Fund campaign board, but you've also served on the Midwest caucus chair um, for the um, you've served as the Midwest caucus chair for that organization. You do a lot of crap is what I'm saying. And when did the life you have now as this notable and successful entrepreneur become an attainable reality for you? It's so interesting to hear someone describe all of those things. And I, I appreciate you recognizing sort of those, my efforts in the, over the past decade and in the LGBTQ or the queer uh, space. And uh, it's a joy, it's an honor, and I've been super humbled to do a lot of this work. And what a great question. I would answer that question as honestly as I, as I can. I believe that sort of the, my goals became attainable when I chose to live openly and authentically, which was for me, June 14th, 2010, which is when mm -hmm. I came out of, out of the closet as gay. And for me, in, in my own experience, um, living inauthentically actually was a barrier to more broad success professionally, but also more importantly, personally. And so, so June 14th, 2010, when I made the choice to live authentically, it was when my goals, my dreams became reachable and attainable. And there's a, there's a process to the process of coming out. Like there's definitely like a long road that leads to it. And then there's also the, I guess what you've pointed out is the inner peace that you attained and knowing that this is the life that you did want for yourself. And in your career, as I've looked you up and looked into your background and have known you, you have a very sales focused career where it's not only a requirement, it's a demand that you put yourself out there as an individual, as a business entity. Just coming out in 2012, you had already been out as a professional. What did the process of coming out truly mean for you or truly look like for you as you not only came out? You know, I think it's one thing to come out while you're in college. And I think it's another thing to come out while you're you're already, you know, supposed to have it all together. It's another really great question. And it's something I, I've struggled with. And I struggled with earlier on more than I do now. However, there are still some parallels and some similarities. And, you know, when I came out of the closet, when I came out as gay in the business community in Little Rock, Arkansas, I think that one thing that's different, that was different then was I had to... You know, people already perceived me as someone. People already thought of me as a, um, a straight man in business. And so people's perceptions were forced to change. And, and that was challenging. I, I lost business. And, and then I, I had to start asking myself, well, am I, am I okay to be 
openly gay, you know, I mean, is that going to affect my income and my livelihood? And is it true that I shouldn't flaunt this part of me in front of people? And, and that was hard for a little while, but I quickly, I mean, you know, as I was living authentically and truthfully, I found my voice and I found confidence and, uh, and that helped me sort of move past that. But fast forward now, you know, a, a decade later or so, I run a business and I have to, this is actually a timely conversation because just yesterday I was talking with my business coach about the balance of my personal values mm. and running a business and how do you balance that? And that is something I've thought about a lot over the past year, you know, because I lean into, you know, you'll hear, you'll hear me talk about empathy. You'll hear me talk about compassion but am I practicing that? Meaning, am I listening to those voices that may be different from mine? Am I truly understanding other people's experiences in a way that is authentic and truthful? And, and how am I bringing that in my business? But it is more clear to me today than ever before that I am choosing to build a business that is based off of my values. And one of my core values essentially is helping amazing people do amazing things in the world, do good and cause no harm. And if you are doing good and causing no harm, I'm here as an individual and I'm also here as a business. Uh, and, and so it is very clear to me that that's how I, I choose to operate. But it's also been a process, to your point, in arriving to that destination or that decision. And you go from Arkansas, you spent some of your adult life there in Arkansas, and then you come to Chicago. And those are two very different places. When I think of Arkansas, I actually think of the Clintons. I know that's a whole different era. And then you come to Chicago. And when I heard about what happened in Colorado Springs and that there was a big gay bar there, I one go like, whoa, there's a gay bar in Colorado Springs. Like it gave me like a kind of a, a glimpse of like when I was in Oshkosh of like, there's like one gay bar like out in the middle of nowhere. And it's nothing like the experience you necessarily get in the city, but it still serves as that safe space. What would you say was the biggest difference as you operated as a professional, but also as a queer person socially between Arkansas and Chicago? I can speak a little bit more to sort of just uh, as a queer person living my, I think I've actually lived more of my life in Arkansas than I have Chicago. And it's actually a big question because Arkansas is a beautiful state with some incredible human beings that exist in that state. And and I'm also nostalgic about it because I'm from there. I was born and raised in the Delta and, and you know, had some amazing uh, life experiences while I was in Arkansas. And now I'm in Chicago here in Illinois and Chicago is wonderful. And it's given me a whole new set of experiences and perspectives. And I think that, and I can speak about my experience, but the biggest difference for me to this day, and even when I visit the natural state, just Arkansas. We love um, the natural state. I love that. We, we do. We do. Um, but even when I visit, I'm reminded of the how people choose to participate in religion in mm. Arkansas versus how people choose to participate in religion, faith, spirituality here in Chicago. Well, you're in the Bible um, Belt down there. Truly. And one of the reasons that it took me so long to live my authentic self. Uh, it took me 25 years to say the words, I am gay, when I had known for a good decade that I was gay, was because of how people chose to participate and use religion. And it's often used as, as a weapon or a mask, you know, and I would, I am very cautious of anyone who says something like, I believe in traditional marriage. That, to me, is a phrase that is used to mask their chosen hate for people who are in same-sex relationships or people who are, who are gay. And I, and I have always been cautious. I'm now very cautious of anyone who says that phrase to me or people who say, I don't believe in same-sex marriage. That is actually a mask under religion for chosen hate. And that is used to weaponize people. And I experienced that a lot my entire life in Arkansas. I've experienced it none in Chicago. And it has been very liberating for me as a gay man. I'm just aiming to exist on this planet without being told that I'm sinning or going to hell or 
you know, et cetera. So to me, and in my experience, that is, has been the core difference. Were you raised religious or, or do you know what denomination or reformation that you, you and your family were a part of? And what was your, you know, involvement? Yeah, you know, um, and before I even talk about that, I would say I am not a, a person who is against faith and I'm not a person who doesn't believe in religious freedom. And, I, and I'll, I'll make a quick example of there's a girl I know and she's in rural Illinois and she's around, she's probably in her early 40s and she's never been a religious person. And she started going to church a couple of years, uh, you know, a few years ago. And, and she was kind of nervous to tell me that she was going to church. And I told her, I was like, oh my gosh, that's great. Like, tell me about this experience you're having. And, and this church was, she's mixed race and she felt very included. There were, I believe, some LGBTQ folks at this church. I mean, it was a smaller church and it was giving her this community was giving her what she needed in this moment in her life. And who on earth am I to say you shouldn't do that because it interferes with my orientation, especially a church that's perceived to be perceivably, you know, accepting. And so, and I just applauded her for finding that space that is benefiting her life so dramatically. So I I just wanted to say that my mom and my dad took my brother and I to church. We were members of the Methodist church in West Memphis, Arkansas. And overall I had fine experience there. Um, and in many ways felt welcomed. It was more towards my teenage years when I had more questions that couldn't be answered. The great awakening, spring awakening. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) Is when I started to be more silenced in that church. I think more importantly than that, it wasn't even the fact that I attended church growing up or that my parents took us to church. We went to Sunday school. I went on mission trips. It wasn't that. It was the radical religion that was all around us. My grandparents um, in Southern Missouri were part of a really radical group, which today I would call scary. And that was, that's all over the Delta. It's all, it's, it's, it's in rural, rural Illinois as well. But it was that, being around that this sort of extreme, this extremist ideology or behavior, which was frightening for a little closeted gay boy in the middle of nowhere. So I think that was, was more, that was harder than growing up and being a member of the Methodist church. I hear you. I was raised Pentecostal, Pentecostal and Baptist. So you put them together, you get Baptocostal or Pentabaptist. And I actually... I understand a lot of what you're saying when it comes to kind of the the radical behavior towards the lifestyle of a queer person. But I want to go back to something you said about the traditional marriage comment. And we can call her name. You know, we're not going to get sued. Candace Cameron Bure, she made headlines literally, I think, just last week in the queer community specifically because she's transitioned from the Hallmark Channel and she took over a gig as the chief creative officer at the Great American Family Network. I'm sorry I said it like that, but it, it just cracks me up. Uh, but the Wall Street Journal, they, they cover it because it is a significant move. And I actually think this journalist was savvy in the questions that they asked if they knew Candace's history, but they asked if they would be producing, you know, inclusive Christmas films, inclusive content on the platform. And in her response, Candace being Candace, she said, you know, they're going to focus more on traditional marriage. And so I'm asking you, is queer affirming for religious institutions the only viable option for faith institutions going forward? Are we necessarily expecting a lot of these organizations that honestly didn't let women preach up until, you know, 20, 30 years ago or hold leadership positions within their organizations, which is a significant, you know, period of time of not really going forward with the culture. Are we expecting institutions to to cater to culture, to the forward progression movement of what we're doing out here? That is a big question. And I think that I will answer this by talking about ultimate empathy and my definition of ultimate empathy. I just had this conversation with a dear friend of mine last week, and I believe that ultimate empathy is the ability to walk into any space, situation, or conversation with the intention of listening and learning and the willingness to change your mind or grow your perspective. Because if you embrace that, there should be less barriers to conflict. That's what should happen as a result of embracing ultimate empathy. And I think that 
A, the church misses that. And I also believe that their members and participants lack that. And, and that's then, broad, you're and saying that, that broadly, or are we, are you talking specifically broadly, to, okay. Broadly. And then that produces people like Candace who then take that sort of what I think to be a, a misinformed or misguided opinion or choice masked in hate, you know, again, that's her choice to disapprove, to not accept, um, and to actively hate some LGBTQ people. But she says it in a way, I think about traditional marriage and it produces people like that who then take these philosophies into the business world. And that is fine. So that's my, my one point is ultimate empathy and embracing that. My second point is just why. Why not embrace inclusion and diversity in a business? Why not? Because at the end of the day, you are a, a business aiming to make a profit. So at the end of the day, when you are excluding lives, excluding audience members, excluding people, excluding folks from the table making decisions, you're hurting your bottom line. And, and people don't talk about whether they're for-profit organizations, nonprofit organizations, boards. I don't hear a lot about the why when it comes to inclusion and diversity. And, um, and the why is so important. It's not about checking off a box. Inclusion and diversity doesn't equal gay. doesn't equal black. It doesn't equal female. Inclusion and diversity is, is a collective of individuals with broad experiences and perspectives that at the end of the day, at the end of the day will impact your bottom line in a positive way. So the fact that, and especially in 2022 coming out and masking her hate in that way in a business settings is not surprising, but it is also frustrating because what message does that send, you know, to folks who are who want to be entertained and, what message is that sending to young people? You know, I mean, there's a big word flying around right now, um, a groomer. I mean, this is another way of, of grooming and arguably. And so that, those are my thoughts on that. And I hear you. What I kind of, what I kind of have some push pull on is the, the affirmation, or I won't say that word because I'm, I'm going to use it again, but I would say that there are, there are Christians who, maybe aren't radicalized who in their doctrine they are just taught that you know marriage is between a man and a woman and that is how god made it to be and you can do what you're gonna do i'm not gonna be involved in it but if you if i met you and your partner i would invite you over for dinner and i would still love on you as if you were everyone else but i have a conflict with what i've been taught for 40 years for 50 years for what i have believed and what i have convictions on does having that conviction always equal hate? Does it actually rise to that level? Or is it just time? Is it just what you've been taught? And is it like your convictions? Here's how I've answered this. So let's say there's a, a couple that you're talking about who were raised this way, were um, quote unquote traditional in their values and didn't necessarily quote unquote agree with same sex marriage because they were taught this. And it's connected to their religion, by all means, fine. One, I'm here to here to share with you that there's no such thing as disagreeing with homosexuality. That's like me disagreeing with heterosexuality. So that is <laughs> invalid and, and is not, not applicable. But I would say the problem is that belief is then taken to the voting booth, right? So mm. that belief that they're convicted in, that they were taught, that book, the Bible that they're reading, that they claim claim that it is, is against same-sex relationships, they take that to the voting booth. And then they vote for people who share that belief. And then those people are then members of Congress and also presidents of the United States. And also, when they're elected, they are actively not just voting against LGBTQ people, they are putting forth hundreds of pieces of legislation that is anti-lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. And that is harming young people. It's harming, it's harming people. I mean, we just earned the right to get married a few years ago. And we are a community that has been experiencing what I do call hate 
for years and years and years now. And it's still, and it's still happening. And it's because these belief systems are taken to the voting booth and that directly impacts uh, folks like me and, and yourself. Yeah. Let's go into that. So the Respect for Marriage Act, it's going to pass in Congress. Yay confetti in part thanks to the votes of 12 Republican members who joined the effort after negotiating an amendment to the bill. I call it the cake amendment that would protect religious institutions from being legally liable for refusing to do a gay wedding, for example. The Mormon Church, which is a more conservative Christian movement, they came out in support of this bill in part because it's covering their butt, but they also let it be known that the doctrine of their church is still not to be queer affirming. You did a post on LinkedIn um, and on your Instagram story, which is actually what prompted me to invite you onto the show because you were very forthright about communicating your point of view. And I wanted to be able to bring that to more people. In your post, you call out religious institutions who have that more fundamentalist doctrine for spewing hate and ultimately being a part of the problem. And then you've just drawn a line there with what people are hearing in the pews, what they're hearing online and them taking that into the voting booth. And then, you know, 37 Republican senators voting to not affirm this simple right. I coincidentally had a conversation about this with my sales coach last Friday. And for him, he's, he's a, you know, from the South, um, listens to the show. Thank you for listening. You know, I'm talking about you right now. And he was saying how for him, he had struggled for a while with the word marriage and what marriage meant to him within his religion, within his faith tradition. And I think it's important to know that when you're voting and when you are voting for people, I don't think you're necessarily voting for what will be taught in your church and what will be the beliefs that you will hold privately. But you are saying that you are not less than than what I have because he had brought up civil um, unions and that being a viable option. And I was like, but why? Because what we're saying when we do civil unions is that, oh, you're a step below what we have over here. And I think what we've done as a society, as we've become, you know, more secular and less kind of beheld into, you know, the pulpits of America or some of those foundational Judeo-Christian beliefs is that we are trying to level the playing field for, for people who don't follow, you know, I hate to say traditional, but the traditional paths that have been legitimized and have been backed by the government. I guess where I have conflict is that in I, I know that there are queer folk out there who were brought up in more fundamentalist, more evangelical, you know, backgrounds who have found peace with their own faith, but they still assemble in a community that will not have a pride flag, that will not marry them. You know, there will always be, I guess, that unspoken tension. I, will, I don't want to say don't ask, don't tell. But they know that, you know, of course, their priest, their pastor is there for them, but they're not going to be officiating their wedding anytime soon. What do you say to those individuals that have found their own peace within their faith, but still assemble in a community that may not be affirming? Are, are we saying that they're committing violence or, or accepting hate against them? I'm not one to necessarily debate one's religious choice or um, faith journey because we're all on unique journeys. And going back to what I said earlier, I, I appreciate the idea and concept of church. And I think that how beautiful when a queer person or an LGBTQ person can find a space that makes them feel connected, you know, to faith and God in a world where most LGBTQ people that you speak to don't share that experience. I find it beautiful when that happens. And it's also not my, I would never question that. I admire it and I encourage it and I would never question that. So, you know, that's a, that's a tough question for me to answer just because everyone's on such a different and unique path. I hear you. And I think about, because we're, we're using words like hate and, you know, this act of violence, a lot of people online we're bringing up names like Lauren, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tucker Carlson, the whole of Fox News, the Daily Wire, and those conservative outlets, organizations, individuals who do have large platforms are being called out because they have used rhetoric that is charged, that gives fodder to someone with a mental illness. Because often when a tragedy like this happens, there was just another shooting in Virginia. I believe last night, six individuals are reported dead. But every time there's a shooting, we're talking about, you know, there's mental health, we're talking about guns, and then there's a conversation about our political discourse and rhetoric. And in this instance specifically, those individuals have been called out immediately. 
because they say things like, you know, traditional marriage is under attack and a queer lifestyle is going to be to the demise of Western civilization and people are taking in that content. And so I guess the line is being drawn between what you were saying and then what the most radical of you are saying. What do you say to individuals that don't necessarily see that line of connection between uh, rhetoric that is charged, that is a dog whistle, but I think more so these days, it's been fairly direct. I jokingly was at a, um, I was at an underground Pokemon drag show this past weekend, and I walked up to the performers afterwards, and I was being a little funny, and I was like, you know, the Republicans tell me that you are going to be the end of Western civilization, but what I've seen here tonight is not that. And they laughed, and we laughed, and we joked about it, but the reality is that is literally what is being said on the airwaves. And yes, only, you know, a million people tune into the Daily Wire, a million or so in Fox News. But that is having an impact when it is spread. So what do you say about the connection between the rhetoric, but then the violence? Well, number, number one, the concept of an underground Pokemon drag show is <laughs> you incredible. I'll send you some videos. I mean, let me tell you, Matthew Peterson would be all over that. So, and I will also gladly attend. Um, <laughs> so um, that I can't get that. that I'll send you some videos. Brain. It's really cool. Thank it you. was really a good time. Yeah. Second, I mean, what a fair question and a great, great point to make. And there is such a connection, right, to to folks who are, what I like to say, spewing hate or this negative rhetoric and then situations, uh, terrorist attacks like we saw. And, and I can draw that line a little bit. But I think that my first question goes to why. Why? You know, because I, I saw on social media, there's a lot of folks saying, um, you know, this is an isolated incident. You know, why are we making this about um, LGBTQ issues, et cetera? And, and I, I, I get that. And I think everyone has a right to, to ask that question. And I think that everyone also has a, should also do research, pause and listen to LGBTQ people in moments like this. And that doesn't happen enough. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene within 24 hours was posting her opinion left and right and about the attack in Colorado Springs. And I thought, girl, this is your time to listen. You know, this is not a moment to offer your deranged opinion. I would say, the, what is the why? This was a message sent to the LGBTQ community. And it was a message that says, we hate you. I hate you. And the reason that, that, is a, that this attack, this domestic terrorist attack that took place in Colorado, Colorado Springs is, in fact, a message to LGBTQ people is because the intention was there to attack LGBTQ people. Now, this wasn't a, this wasn't a drive-by shooting. This wasn't a robbery at a convenience store or at a high-end boutique I mean, this, where something went wrong. There's talk of um, hate charges against him, and which means that there is suspicion, there is evidence or evidence that this person walked into this bar with the intention of killing people because they are trans and because they are gay. And if you're gonna if you're gonna attack that those folks, it's gonna be at a, at a gay club or a gay bar. So it's the why, and I would say that it all boils down to the why, the intention, and that's the difference, you know. And it's it's good to pay attention to the why things are happening. You know, why is, is there such neg negative rhetoric, negative rhetoric right now? Well, there's one reason and that's, that is, you know, you've got folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's this Congresswoman in Georgia. She's using life experiences of young trans people or families that have trans experiences within them. She's using them to elevate her platform. And it's wildly inappropriate. You know, it's wildly inappropriate. Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, is doing the same thing. How can he secure a few more votes? Let's tap into this hateful rhetoric. Let's pick on some of the most vulnerable people, trans people in America. Let's pick on them to elevate this platform. So, you know, it's, it's happening everywhere. And so it confuses people, right? It confuses people. And if there are folks who are living a life full of hate, because that's what they choose to do. And then they hear all of this from people in positions of power, media, et cetera. It's going to just fuel that. And it's going to, and it is going to escalate into really terrible behavior, like what we saw last weekend. I hope that some of what I said made sense there. 
Yeah, what I'm hearing is that at the end of the day, words matter. And when the tenor of our rhetoric goes against a group of individuals so aggressively that it does end up becoming fodder to the worst among you, that it validates the potential mental health lapse, it validates the mental illness. But because that content is out there and it speaks so impassionedly, that it speaks so strongly, it does have the opportunity to create, uh, to be a brick down the path of what then becomes, you know, a Colorado Springs, which I think is extremely unfortunate. To your point about voting in these politicians who then take stances that are not queer affirming, that are more skeptical. And I can hear someone say, you know, I don't disagree that queer people should have rights and should be treated fairly. I am concerned with encouraging those urges so early in a child's adolescence. I'm, I am concerned with how much we are leaning into it because I'm ignorant to that. I, I don't necessarily know, and I don't think that we're getting it right necessarily. So for me, also, that's hard to think about, you know, what a childhood and even my teenage years and in my early 20s would have been like if it was an affirming atmosphere. But is an individual allowed to be concerned before they are labeled as part of the problem? Queerphobic, homophobic, transphobic. Are we leaving room for caution? Are we giving grace to allow the discussion to happen. Something that I was reading this morning from the American Academy Pediatrics, and this line, it just, it really stuck with me, is that they have taken an affirming stance towards, you know, affirming queer youth, including trans youth. And they're saying that the emotional and psychological trauma of rejection, whether by family, friends, society, or lawmakers, that it can leave scars that never heal. And when you fail to accept people for who they are, and you pass painful judgments on them, you create so much unnecessary emotional and psychological pain. And it is that, that line that they have taken as, you know, permission to affirm, but you st there's still tension because it's not a solved issue. What do you say to that? I go back to the why. So your question is, does an individual have the right to be concerned about a, a young person of a trans experience in particular? Of course. But what's the why driving the concern? If the why is coming, uh, or I'm sorry, if the concern is coming from a national committee of world-renowned doctors who are concerned about uh, the health and well-being of long-term or long-term and short-term health and well-being of trans and non-binary youth, then I believe that we should listen to that conversation. And I think that they have also, you know, the, the, the world-renowned doctors in our country have made a, um, a decision on that. But I think if the concern is coming from them, that's one thing. If the concern is being projected by, again, Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, the people that vote for him, the people that are passionate about not allowing trans youth to go through gender-affirming surgeries or, or, you know, whatever. I think Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, the people that are so vocal against gender-affirming care, for trans youth and trans people and trans families, I challenge that concern. My opinion is that that concern is not grounded in care uh, or medicine. <laughs> um, it is grounded in, I want to tap into something right now that will influence the amount of votes I get in my election. And people seem to care about this. So I'm going to radicalize it. I'm going to make it extreme. I'm going to add it to my platform. In some places, it works. And that's alarming. In many places, it doesn't. And so that's that's what I would think. Like, Why is someone concerned? For me, never have I been concerned about a trans person's experience, because that is very private and very intimate. And to your great point earlier, imagine waking up as a trans person, especially as a young person, watching your life literally being debated and learning that just a few years ago, there, was, there wasn't a lot of anti-trans legislation being passed through, but now there are over 200 bills that were introduced just in 2022 alone. So those are my thoughts on that. To your great point, I cannot imagine. I actually, I went to an event this summer and the event was a fundraiser for the Gender Cool Project, where I watched a trans girl, I believe she was maybe 16 or 17, speaking and she got a little emotional and she said, I'm so sorry. It's so hard 
to be trans right now. And Mm -hmm. it broke my heart because I'm watching this person who is just trying to live on this earth in peace. (laughs) And she had this really emotional reaction to what's happening all around her. And I, I can't imagine what that's like. I'll never know that experience. And that's important to acknowledge, too. And I, I acknowledge that as well, that a reason that that hasn't been a more um, prominent piece of this conversation, uh, neither of us are trans. We both know um, individuals who are, but it's hard to put myself in those shoes and to imagine that situation. And I can't. So guys, we'll just have a conversation with a trans individual soon. But I can't fully adequate. And I've had these conversations privately with people. And I'm like, you know, I I don't understand it, but my job, you know, and I am a Christian, I don't understand it, but my job is to love. And if me allowing my indecisiveness and me not fully understanding it to vote for someone that would, you know, sensationalize the rhetoric and and would actually make life a lot harder for them, you know, what am I actually doing? Am I benefiting their lives or am I causing harm to it? And so I think everyone will weigh that decision for some of you who are of faith who listen to this. You'll weigh that decision on your own. But that's where I've sat with it, of being a person of wanting to to love and to affirm and who knows what life is going to bring. And I think you're right when it comes to, and, and my question, it was less of imagining speaking to a Marjorie Taylor Greene who's saying like, you know, I'm concerned, but more to a grandparent, to a guardian, to a parent. And I do think there is an amount of grace that should be allowed in those conversations because by and large, those parents are affirming. By and large, those parents are trying to do whatever they can to keep their children happy, but also on this earth longer. Allowing them to reach 18, allowing them to reach 21. A prominent case of that is, you know, Gabby Union and Dwayne Wade with their daughter. And for them, I think the goal is just let's let's stay alive and let's have a childhood. Let's grow up. <laughs> right, 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 right. And I think um, that's, a, that's a great point, you know, and again, that concern from the grandparent or the parent or the relative doesn't come from a place of hate. doesn't come from a place of, oh, this challenges my faith or challenges my religious journey. This comes from a place of love. I care for my cousin. I care for my aunt. I care for my child. And I want to make sure that they have the resources that they need to live and thrive. I know two people. It's a straight couple. And they had a trans, or they had one of their kids come out as trans at a young age. And the kid was scared to death to tell them that they think that they were a girl. And the parents looked at her and said, honey, we believe you. And we will do whatever you need us to do to make sure that you have the best life possible. And when they shared that experience with me, it just hit. Because imagine that ultimate empathy living inside of every parent and every relative of a trans person, the world would be different and it's food for thought, you know? Yeah. And as we kind of wind down, you mentioned a piece about, you know, corporate responsibility when you were talking earlier and how, you know, you do have the privilege as an individual who has started their own company to really embed your values into the company and to make that a part of your ethos and a part of your bottom line. As we've a few things that happened in the wake of Colorado Springs, the Broncos shared, I think it was a rainbow version of their logo. And what got highlighted from it was how people responded. And people look at that and they're like, oh, corporations are just going after the money. They know that people are not going to want to buy their stuff unless they carry the rainbow flag. And then you look at situations like what's happening with the World Cup in Qatar. And why was it in Qatar in the first place? LOL bribes. But it's in Qatar and it's not the most safe space. It's not a safe space at all for queer individuals. And the teams are trying to express their values, but the players are not in control of their teams. Money is in control of their teams. Boards are in control of their teams. So what is our true expectation of corporations, of sports teams, in social politics, in the social discourse? Are individuals who lead you know, private enterprise, are they allowed to have their nonviolent but dissenting opinions? We kind of touched on that with Candace Cameron Bure. Go ahead. I'll let you just go after that one. You know, here is, I feel like I keep saying this, but it goes back to the why. You know, why is diversity important? Why is variety important? Why is inclusiveness important? It's not about checking off the box. It's, you know, um, as a, and I can speak a couple different, through a couple different lenses. One, as a business owner, anyone that I pay, is from a historically marginalized community. I prioritize support 
you know, I prioritize supporting organizations that do work on behalf of historically marginalized communities. And I think that that's uh, important. And I would love if business owners and large corporations prioritized paying vendors, you know, from historically marginalized communities. That's one a demonstration that can take place. Two is I think that business owners like myself, but also major Fortune 500 companies and other institutions must be held accountable. And they're held accountable by the people. And the people are becoming increasingly vocal about what that should look like. And folks better get on board, you know, because there's a shift happening right now. And I think it actually benefits the bottom line of these Fortune 500 companies to pay attention to that shift. Many of these companies are paying attention and it's important. And, you know, I know that there is a lot of talk, especially in the LGBTQ community, that, oh, corporations show up on June 1st for LGBTQ people and they leave on June 30th because um, June is Pride Month. And I'll say what, there, there may be some truth to that, right? And I'm not here to, to debate that at all. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert in that. But that wasn't a problem 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And that's, it's worth noting. Um, and it's worth acknowledging, and we should be celebrating the progress. We should acknowledge the progress, and we should celebrate these wins um, as a community. Any historically marginalized community should have celebration, should celebrate progress, but not forget everything that has to continue happening. As a gay man, I have spent years coming to terms with the fact that I will never live in an equitable world as a gay man. Um, I will never experience equity in my lifetime. So therefore, it is a responsibility of mine while I'm on this earth to ensure that lifetimes after me can maybe experience some equity. And that is not only for the LGBTQ community, that is for every historically marginalized community. So celebrate the wins, but recognize what needs to happen in the future and hold people accountable, including elected officials. And then how do you diversify? We talked a bit about media ecosystems and we've mentioned some of the more radical, sensationalized individuals who really, you know, create the culture war as it is. And they really ride on the wave of what is outraging people and they, you know, turn up the heat times 20. How do you yourself diversify your own media ecosystem, your people ecosystem to stay current on issues, but not fall into the trap of sensationalism? Number one, I do try to, I do listen to multiple outlets and I do what I, I'm going to air quote for research, <laughs> Google, what are media opportunities? For example, a while back, I was looking for a more politically centric podcast and I found one left is called left, right, and center. And it's wonderful. I listen to it every time it comes out because there are no misinformed opinions, right? There's no there are no inappropriate opinions. It is usually grounded in fact, or there are opportunities to make the world better or to achieve the greater good, but fundamental differences and approaches in how to do that. And I am able to then listen to these approaches and determine I can make an, I can form an opinion based off of these, these facts. And so I think it's important that people do that. You know, find outlets, whether it's a podcast or a book or TV or a a network, a news network, and just really try not to embrace the noise. Try not to find joy in the noise and celebrate the noise and just listen to the the facts. And that's that's been really helpful for me. And it's, it's helped me find patience. It's helped me stay a little neutral. It's helped me be able to engage in more healthy conversations, you know? And then we've kind of discussed the the next step that I've really gotten from this conversation is really to embrace empathy. And embracing empathy is not a feeling like I feel like someone's embracing empathy right now and they're hugging themselves. But embracing empathy is the action of informing yourself. It's the action of not rushing to judgments. And then it's the action of then allowing the convictions you have to really be translated into your everyday life into the voting booth, into how you advocate, especially if you are not, you know, a a queer individual, you can be an ally to queer individuals. And this may be a journey for you. And you may be taking your first step today by listening to this podcast, 
but I hope that you realize that we're not trying to take down Western civilization. Most of us really like capitalism and we, we do really well, but really we're, we're trying to build a world where there is that equal playing field. Is there something you would add to that as a next step for individuals uh, following this conversation? It's well said. I would say there are now 8 billion people on this planet. And imagine if every single one of us embraced what you just said. If Imagine if every single one of us truly and authentically wanted the absolute best in the person sitting next to me at this coffee shop who I don't know, in the person walking across that crosswalk right over there, the person flying to another part of the country. Mm. Imagine if we wanted the best for every stranger that we've never met. Our world would be so different. And that is why ultimate empathy, I think, is so important is because if we embrace it in our hearts, our world can be different in our lifetime. And we will set up young people for a successful life ahead. What is your hope for the next phase of your of your future, the next phase of your career? Hey, Matthew, I hope you're listening, but what are you hopeful for? Um, Matthew will definitely listen. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I find joy every single day in doing the work that I do. And I can only hope to continue doing that. I can only hope that I continue helping amazing people doing amazing things. That's my joy. It brings me joy. I love it. And I hope to continue that. And as a human, I would love to live in a country that has a different tone that I I would really love to see some toned down rhetoric. I, I will mention two two things. One is John Stewart um, has a new podcast. I think it's called The Problem. Yeah. And he recently interviewed Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. So the content is wonderful. But what I found to be profound was three intelligent people sitting together in a room who have three different experiences in life two of which have been secretaries of states in very different eras, discussing issues through one singular lens, which is how can the world be better? How our efforts as secretaries of states have been to make the world a better and stronger place. And you could feel that energy. You could feel um, those two secretaries of state, Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice, speaking through that lens but still having fundamental differences in their approaches and how wonderful. And when can we get back to that? So I think as a human being living in America, I would love to see better rhetoric and more constructive conversations between Democrats and Republicans and and whatnot. Thank you so much, Eric, for coming on BC's Corner. This is probably one of my favorite episodes to date. And truly thank you for sharing your heart, but also your expertise. So I'm so thankful you came on. Well, honored to be here, Brian, and uh, I look forward to seeing you at the next Elro, the next oh, EDM I will concert. Be there. I will be there. She will be there. <laughs> <laughs> want to connect with Eric, feel free to go in the show notes. His socials and more about Wilkerson and Company is all right there. Thank you so much for listening today. 